Our scripture text this morning comes from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 11 and 16 through 20. Listen for a word from God. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. If anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you, cure the sick who are there, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off in protest against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. Whoever listens to you listens to me, and whoever rejects you rejects me. And whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. The seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, in your name, even the demons submitted to us. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. See, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the spirits submit to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for your word to us. I pray that you would open our ears and our eyes and our hearts and our mind to the message you have for us. named Charles, and one afternoon, uh, when Charles was in grad school, he found himself locked out of his apartment, and he lived with a roommate at the time, but the roommate wasn't home, and to make matters worse, his cell phone was dead, and so there was nothing Charles could do but sit and wait. So they lived at the time in this uh, beautiful brick building, and they were their apartment was on the third floor. So Charles sat outside his own door, you know, in the hallway there, just waiting for the roommate to come home. He had no idea how long it would be. After about 30 or 45 minutes, Charles heard from the inside of the apartment a buzzer ringing. So someone was at the front door trying to contact them. So he got excited. He thought, oh, maybe it's one of my friends. They can help. They can call the roommate. This will be good. So he ran down the stairs as fast as he could and opened the door to the front entrance of the building. And instead of a friend, he saw two young men dressed up in suits, eagerly pressing every buzzer they could. And you might guess, they were missionaries from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It was uh, the least welcome guest that Charles could have thought of at that moment, and he sort of sighed with frustration. And they introduced themselves very eagerly, and he was certainly polite, but sort of explained his situation and what was going on, and that it was not a good time to talk. And so they exchanged pleasantries, and they went on their way. 
He went back up and sat in front of his door, and about 10 minutes later, the missionaries came back. And they buzzed him downstairs, and he came out, but before he could even get annoyed, they said, listen, listen, we've been thinking about you, and Elder Stephen here uh, is actually a really good climber. He's, like, he's a mountain climber. He thinks he can scale that gutter and get up to your third floor window. So Charles kind of laughed and was like, I, I don't know, I don't want you, I don't want to be responsible for you doing this. And they were like, no, we're just, we're just going to give it a try. So sure enough, Elder Stephen climbs up the gutter, gets in the third floor window, and then lets them in from the inside. At this point, Charles cannot say no to a conversation <laughs> with these people, right? And so he invites them in and they sit down and they had a wonderful conversation. And he was very upfront, like, you're not going to get a convert. He worked for the Presbyterian Church at the time. He was very secure in his understanding of faith. But they sat down and they had great conversation. I love this story for a lot of reasons, but I think it can teach us a lot about what it means to be a missionary. And our story for today is the same thing. This is one of the first instances in the gospel where Jesus sends out missionaries. And he gathers 70 or 72, depending on the source, and he tells them to go out to the towns that Jesus he himself will be going to and prepare the way. He says, go and tell the people what you have seen and heard, share with them miracles and healing, grant them peace and the understanding that God's kingdom is near, go ahead of me. And so they go in pairs and they travel to these different locations all around, and they're a little nervous as they head out, as they should be. As Jesus says, it's like your sheep and I'm sending you out among wolves. They have no idea how they will be received by the people. I wonder if you have ever had to rely on a welcome from someone when you were a stranger. And I wonder if you have ever been in the position to welcome others, strangers, maybe when they didn't have any resources. Jesus specifically tells the 70 to go out without any belongings, without extra things, without their own food, to have to rely on the hospitality of the strangers that they encounter. I wonder who you've had the opportunity to welcome, whether it's a Mormon missionary or a refugee or someone new to your workplace or neighborhood. Many of us struggle on both ends. We struggle to put ourselves in a vulnerable place of going out and relying on the hospitality of others. And we certainly struggle to be open to others, especially if we haven't already bought into whatever it is that they are selling or whatever reason it is that they are there. So the other day I was uh, putting our daughter Naima down for a nap and I heard this very loud knock at the door that repeated over and over and over and over again. And I couldn't answer it. I was trying to put the baby down and, and later was glad that I didn't because when I went to the front door, there was a little note and a business card and it was an honest to goodness vacuum salesperson that was circulating the neighborhood. 
And I thought, do they still do that? And I, like, I Googled it and I researched because I thought this is so bizarre, but it was legit. I saw that where the shop was and all these things. But this vacuum salesperson was in our neighborhood going door to door trying to sell vacuums. And then I, I called a friend of mine who's in sales and I said, is this still a thing? Do people still do this? And he shared with me that certain industries have found great success going door to door. And for some reason, vacuums is still one of those things. But he said, you know, they have all this really great technology now. And there, there are these uh, software programs that will uh, do territory management. And so you will sort of plug in information from sales in the past and they'll do all this projections based on census data and all of that. And it will print out literally a map of where you should target your sales in neighborhoods. Some of you know this. And so, you know, the idea is that you don't want to waste your time in places where whatever you're selling doesn't match income levels of people or interest or uh, cultural expectations or what, what have you. And so you'll get this sort of map to have the most success when you go out doing door-to-door -door sales. Well, mission work is not sales, but there's this very interesting similarity in approach. But not in all of the ways. Jesus tells these 70 as he sends them out, whatever house you go to, offer them peace. Jesus says it doesn't matter what their background is. It doesn't matter if they follow the prescribed law. It doesn't matter if they are already Jewish. It doesn't matter where they live. Wherever you wind up, proclaim peace. Don't judge the door before you go in as to whether or not you will be received. First, go and say peace. My uh, friend who, who is in sales shared with me also how important crafting your pitch is. And the most important part is the first line. You have to capture attention before people can say no to you, right? Like the second time these missionaries came back to my friend, before he could close the door on them again, they said, we're gonna get you up into your house. We're gonna get you there. But they had to say it quickly because they knew the door might shut otherwise. So your first line is the most important. These missionaries that Jesus sends out are given very specific instructions about their first line. They're told to go everywhere, not to worry about a success map, but the first line must stay the same. And that is peace to this house. Peace to you and yours. They begin with peace. There's not a question, there's not a justification as to why they're there, there's no demand. It's offered without any kind of requirement. Peace. Now, the offering of peace in this time and place was not new in itself. There was a culture of desire for peace and of promise of peace. But there's something different about the kind disciples offer. The mission of the 70 in this story takes place in a time in history that later would be called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. If you remember from your history classes, as I'm sure you do, this was the 
200-year time period that began about 30 years before uh, Jesus was born and continued in this time period and after it was the great, great, great expansion of the Roman Empire. And the word of the Roman Empire as they expanded was peace and protection we will offer you and you will be in our control. And it was a relatively peaceful time if you look at uh, you know, warfare, um, but there was an interesting twist to the peace. It had a lot to do with being controlled and being under the power of empire. Might have been quiet, might have been calm, and there might have been some prosperity, at least for the elite in Rome, but it was always based on subjugation. So the people were, were familiar with promises of peace, but it always served the empire. When the disciples come and use the word peace, they mean something very different. They mean a kind of peace that has nothing to do with nation or state or empire. They mean a kind of peace that comes only from Jesus. Scripture talks a lot about peace. It's one of the most common words in the Bible. And the understanding of it that we get through the Hebrew text in the Old Testament is shalom. Shalom, a kind of peace that means wholeness. Not just absence of war or absence of conflict. But wholeness. I've wondered a lot this week about our own perceptions of peace. And I think more often than not, we're trained to think about peace in more of an empire way than in a godly way. We think of peace as quiet and comfortable and orderly. Sometimes we imagine there's a link to prosperity or to resources. Often we feel like we've accomplished peace if we've gotten others to look or act like us, and it is calm. This past week, Garrett and I went uh, to the house of some friends who have two young children under three. And so with our daughter and those two, it was a little chaotic. <laughs> and they were running around and playing and having a wonderful time, and we were so stressed out as adults. And, uh, you know, enjoying watching their fun, but it was a lot. And there was one moment at the end of the evening when we got them to sit down and to eat a snack and to watch a movie when the adults all said, ah, peace. <laughs> but you know, research shows that children learn the most, they grow the most, they are most alive when they are engaged in messy play with others. Children are most whole when they are covered in mud and food and paint with others interacting and loud. And there was this moment when I realized this week, you know, that chaotic part might have actually been the more peaceful part in God's sense of the word. They were whole and living into themselves, and they weren't just quiet and being good for the adults. Peace that comes from God might be loud. 
peace that comes from God might involve conflict. But it's rooted in a kind of wholeness that embraces all of who we are as individuals and all of who we are as community. It's a kind of peace that fosters connection and not just obedience or conquering. The disciples offered this sort of revolutionary vision of peace that people didn't quite understand in the moment. But it's the same kind of peace that we're offered today. At Fort Street here, we are getting ready for peace camp with children. Next month, we will offer the week-long day camp for kids age 4 to 12. And we talk all week long about peace. Peace within ourselves, peace within our relationships with each other, peace with the earth, peace with the world. And I keep thinking, we need, we need adults to do peace camp every, every year. And this is sort of a side plea for volunteers. If you're interested in coming to peace camp, um, please talk to me. Uh, but truly, it is a great reminder for young people and for us to practice what it means to live into a shalom kind of peace that involves wholeness. It requires practice. When Jesus sends these first missionaries out, he says, some people are not going to be ready for this kind of peace. And that's okay. Offer it. Assure them that God's kingdom is near. And if they do not accept it, move along. Don't let it hold your peace back. The harvest is ready, and peace is here. As I wrestled with this understanding of peace, I sort of forced myself to think back on my life and think about what peaceful times might have looked like, even if I didn't think it was peaceful in the moment. And I keep coming back to the memory of my year as an AmeriCorps member. I've shared some stories about that before, but I was 19 and 20 years old, living in Seattle, Washington, making very little money, a little stipend, and living in community with my coworkers. And my, my job as an AmeriCorps member was to create partnerships between public schools and communities of faith and to uh, work to foster relationships within the community. And it was really, really, really hard work. I worked a lot, it was very stressful, there was conflict, I was living in community, I was struggling financially, but it was, the, it was such an experience of wholeness that now as I look back, I think, what a peaceful time. It was loud, it was messy. But I was in community, I knew I had a purpose, and I wasn't alone. I challenge us all this week to think about peace with a different lens. Those things you all described are wonderful, beautiful examples of peace, and hold on to that, hold on to those places in your lives and in your hearts where you have that rest and that quiet. But then think also about the kind of peace that might be messy and loud, but draw us into community with one another. Think about how we might foster that kind of peace in this community of faith, in your own homes and families, in your own places of work and circles of friendships. Let us be people who embrace messy peace where God is at the center. Would you pray with me?
Holy God, open us to the practice of peace, to the practice of receiving others, even if they don't have resources we see as valuable, to the practice of making peace our first word before judgment. Open us to the practice of living out lively peace. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.